It is an ugly finish to an ugly week for the Bulls. The Dow and S&P falling below their June lows. Both indexes now down around 5% just this week. The most important hour of trading starts now. Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Mike Santoli in for Sarah Eisen today. We have a big lineup coming your way to help you navigate this sell-off, including David Lebovitz from J.P. Morgan, former Kansas City Fed President Thomas Honig, Ariel's Charlie Babrinskoy, Mona Mahajan from Edward Jones, and Bespoke's Paul Hickey. Let's now get straight to the market dashboard and take a broad look at the S&P 500. As we mentioned, cracking below those mid-June lows. It was June 16th for the closing low, the intraday low, 36.36. We're now almost a half a percent below that right now. This is a two-year chart. Kind of interesting to see where we've come from. Uh, This takes us basically back to right here. That's the immediate post presidential election rally that we got. It started right, uh, I guess, on or right after Election Day in uh, November of 2020. We popped to this level in the 36s, and then we have round trip from there. Now, there's a lot of people talking about uh, other levels just below here that might be of significance, including the peak before the pandemic, which was more like in the 3,400s. We'll see about that. Things are getting very oversold, though. You're seeing a real washout type conditions in the market today. We'll see how it finishes up by the close. Take a look at the energy dynamics here, too. Participating in the downside more than fully today. The XLE uh, is down uh, much more than the market today. You see crude oil uh, has had a below $80 uh, a barrel print. This is crude oil relative to the XLE, the S&P 500 energy sector. You see how they were tracking perfectly until right around here, they kind of diverged a little bit. Uh, The dollar being stronger, really accelerated global oil prices going up. Plus, the stock seemed to benefit from the idea that they could still make good cash flows at 80-ish or uh, maybe even lower than that oil. And now they are succumbing as well. There's kind of a no, no good place to hide type of feel to this market right now. It's unclear if we have to close that gap entirely. Now, uh, for more on this sell-off and where it might go from here, let's bring in J.P. Morgan Asset Management Global Market Strategist David Lebovitz. And uh, David, it's great to have you here today. I mean, the markets are almost in concert, stocks, bonds, uh, currencies, commodities, repricing for the idea that central banks need to chase inflation and they kind of don't care what the economic damage is in the short term in order for them to do that. How does an investor navigate that kind of setup? So the, the first thing that I'll say is that I think this actually brings us to a much better place than we had been over the course of the summer. I, I recognize the sell-off today. I recognize the sell-off over the past couple of days. Uh, but it feels to me like expectations are finally becoming a bit more aligned uh, with the way that reality may play out. And so there, there's definitely going to be more pain ahead. And you know, now that we have more clarity on the Fed and you know, we'll get some more clarity on inflation, everybody's talking about what that may or may not mean for corporate profits next year. But, you know, looking at the Fed's forecasts that came out on Wednesday afternoon, what was so interesting to me is that they see a very tepid pace of growth with an unemployment rate uh, that rises in 2023. That is going to be a challenging backdrop, uh, particularly for risk assets. And so from an investment standpoint, we're really focused on following cash flows. And we actually think high quality fixed income uh, is looking more and more attractive, given where yields have backed up to, particularly over the past couple of days. I guess the question is, if you are an investor and considering equities as well, uh, do you have to essentially assume that you're going to have to ride out a recession of some depth, uh, an earnings decline uh, that is not yet priced into stocks? Or do you think the market has come around to uh, more or less being aligned with that likely outlook? 
So I do think that there's some additional downside in inequities from here. Uh, but one of the interesting things that we've been talking to clients about quite a bit over the past few weeks is that if you go back to the post-World War II period and you look at the average decline in corporate profits during economic recessions, uh, it's about 30%. That said, if you isolate the period from the late 1960s through the early 1980s, which I would argue has inflation dynamics more similar to where we are today, uh, the average decline in corporate profits was only 15%. And so, you know, clearly earnings estimates for 2023 need to continue to adjust lower. Uh, but we don't see as significant downside as some of the more bearish commentators do in the current environment. We, we've seen the S&P, you know, kind of retest its, its lows here, move below the lows of June. We think that, again, there is some more downside from here. Uh, but if the S&P were to move below 3,500, we, we would be buying to us. That's a level where stocks really begin to, to look attractive. Yeah, not too, not too far down from here if, uh, if indeed we do get there. Now, in terms of the, the global picture, which I know is your purview here, the U.S. dollar going almost vertical here to 20-year highs in the, on the dollar index. We saw what's going on with the, the British pound today collapsing on some of the fiscal and monetary moves there. Everyone assuming that the rest of the world, in some sense, for one reason or another, is going to be a bit of a mess. Um, what does that mean for, for assets everywhere? And I mean, those stock markets have become even more depressed than, than ours have. So the, the stronger dollar has clearly tightened financial conditions and, and is having an impact on economies around the world, particularly uh, those in the emerging markets. When, when we think about the global picture, though, I do think it's important to differentiate between developed markets outside of the United States and, and what's happening in the emerging world. Um, you know, when we look at places like Europe, it, it does seem to us that these elevated energy prices are, are going to just be too much for that economy to overcome. The PMI this morning was consistent with growth that is effectively flat, and, and we do view recession risk uh, as being materially higher in the Eurozone than is the case in the United States. Meanwhile, you have China coming out of a period characterized by COVID lockdowns. We, we are seeing activity uh, in that part of the world begin to bounce, but what happens in, in places like China is really going to be a function of what happens in the developed world more broadly, because obviously we are a key source of demand uh, for the goods that they export. And so, you know, to, to kind of bring it full circle, I think the reality here is that the global story is really going to depend on what happens in our own backyard. I think the old adage of when the U.S. catches a cold, uh, the rest of the world gets sick is what we really need to keep in mind here going forward. But if, if for some reason the U.S. avoids a, a downturn in the economy next year, we actually think that there's some upside, particularly in the emerging world, uh, which has come under significant pressure due to slower growth and the stronger dollar uh, over the course of the year thus far. You mentioned you do see some value here in some safer parts of fixed income. You're getting a little bit of yield up front at this point, rebuild that sort of cushion. Uh, and also, I guess, sort of more reliable cash flows from equities. Do both of those things imply that you think uh, the environment's going to become friendly to, to bonds and bond-like assets? Inflation is peaking and going to come down. The Fed's close to being done. Or is it just a matter of, you know, on a relative basis, they seem safer? Well, I'm not sure that the Fed is, is close to being done. I think that they put that notion to bed uh, on Wednesday afternoon. What, what I would say here is that it feels like the direction of travel broadly for the U.S. and the global economy is towards slower growth. And in an environment of slower growth, we think that long rates will need to reprice lower. And so duration, which has very much been the, the foe of investors so far this year, arguably should become a bit more of a friend as we look ahead to 2023. Uh, and then on the equity front, you you know, I think what's important to remember is that 
the capital markets will bottom before the economic data troughs and, and the, the equity market will begin moving higher before the economic data begins to improve. And when we think about what a potential recession could look like in 2023, uh, we think that, frankly, it will be relatively average. We, we don't see it as being a repeat of 08. We don't see it as being a repeat of 2020. We think a couple of quarters of contraction to the tune of 2 to 3% in real terms, uh, and then mm -hmm. things are back on track and, and markets are on more forward footing. And so you know, now's the time where we've been reminding clients that in the very short term, there, there may be a bit more pain particularly in risk assets, but the stock market market is going to turn itself around uh, well in advance of the economy doing uh, doing so on its own. Yep, that certainly is uh, is the way it typically works. Uh, David, thanks for the reminder. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, the Fed's rate hike decision on Wednesday sparked this latest round of selling. That move and the Fed's policy decisions more broadly is drawing the ire of Wharton Professor of Finance Jeremy Siegel. Here's what he said on the halftime report today. The Fed has just, you know, executed the last two years one of the biggest policy mistakes in the 110-year history of the Fed by staying so easy when everything was booming and pointing to, my God, inflation is going to be a terrible problem. And now, oh, yeah, we did goof badly there, which he never really admitted. I mean, he still blames some things on Ukraine and, you know, Putin and the supplies, even though oil is way below that level. Way beyond that, I think the Fed is just way too tight. They they're going to they're making exactly the same mistake on the other side that they made a year ago. Well, joining us now is former Kansas City Fed President Thomas Honig, uh, and, and Thomas, it's great to have you to weigh in on this. Would you agree, first of all, that it represents uh, an error by the Fed to have been in this position with regard to inflation? And, and I guess, does it matter how we got here uh, in terms of what they have to do now? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a fair point. The, the Fed was behind the curve. They should have been at least removing a lot of that accommodation uh, starting in, in 2021 at the latest. And they delayed throughout the entire year, and therefore we we ended up with the inflationary impulse that we have, and it's become more embedded. And yeah, um, it wasn't all supply side by any means. I mean, with the with the fiscal uh, expansions and the and the monetization of the borrowing there. So yes, that was a mistake. But we are where we are, and now that inflation is embedded, uh, and the Fed knows it, and they know they have to get that down. Uh, from the 8.3, which is actually becoming more and more difficult with time, so they are raising rates, and I think the, I think the 4.6% number they're uh, put in their dot plots or whatever you want to call it um, are are realistic uh, and probably where they will be. The question then will be what will they do in 2023, and I think uh, I suspect they'll have to go a little bit higher at least, and that's going to put continued pressure on the economy. And I think the Odds on inflation are pretty high. Yeah, the 4.6, I mean, uh, of course, was the... the, 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 the odds on recession are pretty high. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Uh, the 4.6 is the, the kind of committee's collective projection for where the Fed funds rate has to get to, as you, as you know. So that seems, you know, it's, yeah. it's not too far away from here, a little more than one percentage point higher from here, but it, looking like they'll get there in kind of a hurry. I mean, it seems that the Fed has concluded by what they're saying and all the signals they're sending that they don't really see an alternative to significant further weakness in employment uh, as a means to get inflation 
under control. Does that remain a valid approach? In other words, can they not essentially get rates to a certain point and then see exactly how uh, how the data come in from here? Because they they do await that two or three months of of more friendly inflation numbers. Well, that's a that'll be a decision they have to make because I do think they're going to have to get tighter than three percent. Everyone, most economists uh, know that. And, and, and 4.6 by the end of the year is, is a likely number. And I think that will slow the economy. But whether it's enough, given the amount of inflation, above 8%, and given the, the, uh, how much it's embedded, uh, I think the, the possibilities are even more. And then, so relying on a modest or continued increase in unemployment to, slow, to, to help with inflation, I think is um, a low probability. I think they're going to have to tie more. And I think they realize, although he didn't say it, uh, that they're going to have to suffer a recession to get this down, and it's it's going to be painful, uh, as he as as uh, Powell said, uh, and there's no way to avoid it. I mean, this is where they are. They've got far enough behind. Now they're in catch up, and there's dangers in catch up of going too far. That's a risk they're going to have to take, apparently. You've said a couple times that inflation is now entrenched. I mean, you could have uh, an argument from some saying, look. Gasoline prices have completely round trip from before uh, the war. Uh, you're seeing things like used car prices that are adjusting faster than what's in the CPI numbers. Uh, rents seem like they're cresting right now if you looked at the listing. So this is the argument that says uh, that they're, they're kind of fighting a little bit of a stale battle when it comes to you know, trying to attack top line, top line inflation the way they are. Uh, and maybe they will end up uh, going a little bit too far. Well, that's always a risk, but I think, you know, pointing out particular uh, areas of inflation that are coming down is a is a risky business itself because overall inflation remains above 8%. And we've seen the the wage increases, which are pretty significant, are still behind inflation. So there's going to be a lot of wage pressure coming forward. Uh, we know that the core CPI is uh, elevated uh, and has not come down. So we're going to have to get through that. And so I, I think and I think the Fed is aware of what happened in the 70s when they when the Fed at that point uh, backed off of their tighter monetary policy too soon and, and inflation reemerged. And I think I think this FOMC led by Powell will want to avoid that. So they're going to I think if they err, they're probably going to err on being uh, above five percent, perhaps a little too long. Yeah, above 5% would, uh, would certainly, uh, I, I think, get the market's further attention uh, from here. We'll see. And, of course, Powell yeah. has indeed said, uh, you know, uh, they, have to, they have to go in that direction, at least, if not to that number. Uh, Thomas Honig, thank you very much. Appreciate the time today. Thank you. Take care. All right. Let's check in the market. Did get a little bit of a bounce right around the top of the hour. Uh, S&P 500 now down about 2.3 percent. The low was uh, closer to 36.50. Uh, the Dow is now off by 634, have been down more than 800. Uh, Nasdaq still down 2.4 percent. And the Russell 2000 uh, has been underperforming all week, down 3 percent. Up next, we'll take a closer look at the action in the energy sector. By far the worst performer today as WTI crude falls below $80 a barrel. As we head to a break, check out some of today's top search tickers on CNBC.com. And as you'd expect, it is all macro focused. The 10-year yield getting the most interest, followed by the S&P 500, the Dow, the two-year yield, and the NASDAQ. We'll be right back.
Energy, the worst performing sector on Wall Street today amid a big decline in oil prices. Brian Sullivan joins us on the phone from Dallas, where that kind of move uh, is noticed. Hey, Brian. Yeah, I'm at the Market Rebellion Conference here in Dallas. Uh, in fact, I've got Bryn Talkington here. I've got uh, Tom Lee here. i got John Adarian and a bunch of oil executives here as well. Here's the reality. I mean, it, Tom Lee just told me two seconds ago it's a no-bid market. Bryn Talkington, frequent guest at halftime, saying you, you're going to eventually have to start buying some of these names here. Listen, throw up the XOP, Mike. Oil stocks are trading as if oil was at 60 or $55, not $78. The disconnect, and I'm talking your market, the stock market, Mike, the disconnect between the commodity and the stocks is really widening today. Listen, here's the thing. Nobody understands the drop in price. Oil demand has only fallen nine times in 60 years, even during steep recessions, ex-COVID lockdowns. It just does not fall off. I fully expect OPEC to try to defend the $90 mark. The Saudis sort of implied that they're going to do that. But today, to your point, Mike, I've been listening. Great stuff all day. It's just, it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's just a sell everything, get out of the way, flush it. And of course, next week is historically the worst week of the year for the stock market. So maybe we just hopefully hold it forward a week. Yeah, well, that is a lot of what's going on, Brian. Of course, uh, oil's priced in dollars, and uh, the, the value of the dollar has been racing higher. And that's, a, that's obviously a big uh, part of that story, but a good reminder on kind of what seems to be priced in to that sector. And for more on that, appreciate it, Brian. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Uh, let's bring in Pavel Molchanov. He is an energy analyst from Raymond James. Uh, Pavel, you heard there what Brian said. I mean, try to put this move into context in terms of what we're seeing uh, in the crude market, breaking to new lows. It, it really does look like a downtrend for whatever the, you know, the reasons behind it. Well, oil has now erased all of its gains since the start of the war in Ukraine. So clearly the supply risks of you know, Russia perhaps trying to weaponize oil exports or additional sanctions, that has been overshadowed by demand side concerns about a global recession. Look, in the last 50 years, global oil demand has turned negative four times, most recently in COVID 2020. Before that, we have to go back to the global financial crisis. So it's very rare, but it's not unheard of. And as central banks seem you know, very much inclined to push the world into recession, you know, oil demand is, is not going to remain unscathed. Right. So... I, I guess the question is, if, if, if it's fears of a decline in demand, as rare as that would be, uh, is there going to be a supply response? Are there things the market's overlooking on the supply side? I mean, I mean one of the arguments for why it's tough to fight against uh, soft demand is that, you know, an unburned gallon of gasoline today is not necessarily made up for later on when China reopens or whatever else happens. Well, so several things on the supply side will help keep prices higher than, than they you know, perhaps would be otherwise. So one is the war is obviously not over and the European embargo on Russian seaborne crude takes effect at the end of the year. Uh, divestments by international energy companies from Russia continue, you know, 80 international energy companies in Russia, and about 65 of those are in the process of divesting. So that will have an effect on Russia's ability to, to produce and export. And lastly, let, let's remember, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in the United States and analogous emergency stockpiles overseas have been utilized 
to keep the market you know well supplied since the first days of the war well you know clearly those stockpiles cannot continue to be used up forever and if demand you know were to slow or you know, worst case scenario turn negative then that will alleviate the pressure on governments you know from having to use mm -hmm. these stockpiles where does it leave you with regard to the stocks in terms of what types of, uh, of names are well positioned now or have been maybe uh, punished a little bit too much given even where commodity prices are? So uh, across the spectrum of, of the oil value chain, the producers, the, the service contractors, the pipelines, the refiners, all of them fundamentally are tied to the commodity. So we have to look at the futures curve. Right now, when we say oil is $80 a barrel, well, you look at the futures curve, it points downward, it's backwardated, you know, down to about $70 a barrel a year from now. Well, mm -hmm. our view at Raymond James is prices are going to be, you know, as we are today or higher over the next 12 months. So that's very different from the backwardation. So just on, on that alone, you know, we would be inclined to be buyers on the weakness because we do not envision oil going, you know, to 70 or, or even less as the futures curve is currently suggesting. All right, Pavel, we'll see uh, if it can find its footing here. Thanks a lot for the time today. Appreciate it. We'll have much more on the energy sector coming up on Overtime with legendary energy trader Mark Fisher. Up next, a debate on whether investors should be betting on value or growth stocks in this uncertain environment. Don't miss your chance to be in the room with some of the biggest names on Wall Street. Also, during CNBC's Delivering Alpha, which returns in person next week, to scan the QR code on the screen to register right now. Markets on pace for a losing week. Uh, major indexes down more than 2%, although they have bounced a little bit in the last hour. Uh, this is the second week in a row for, uh, for losses in the indexes. Check out the value and growth ETFs as well, both getting whacked today on the year. Value has performed better, but should you expect that trend to continue? We have both sides of that debate with us right now. Edward Jones, senior investment strategist Mona Mahajan, is here. And Ariel Investments' Charlie Babrinskoy as well. He is vice chairman and head of the investment group there at Ariel. Uh, hello to you both, and thanks for, uh, for weighing in. And, uh, and Mona, let me, let me give you uh, kind of first crack at this. Uh, you, you can kind of survey the, the damage and, and decide where, in fact, uh, the markets might be a little bit mispriced in different pockets. Why does uh, growth start to look better to you in this environment? Well, you know, Charlie and I may not be too far off in our views here, but we think in a, an environment of rising yields and rising real yields, uh, that tends to benefit value and defensive parts of the market. And by the way, we've been in that environment for most of this year. Now, at some point, uh, investors do have to start thinking about when we get towards a peak in yields. And historically, that peak in yields comes about two months before uh, peak in Fed funds rate, so the Fed funds terminal rate. So if you think Fed funds are peaking sometime in the first quarter, um, a couple months prior to that, you may get a peak in yields as well. And when yields mm. peak, stabilize, tend to roll over, um, that's really when you know the longer duration parts of the market tend to work better, and that's when growth can work better. So in the near term, you know, if yields and real yields are continuing to rise, you may not get that environment yet, but you may get some volatility that gives you the opportunity to at least think about where you'd want to position uh, for potential growth rebound, perhaps in the year ahead. 
Got it. Now, Charlie, uh, now you are a value investor. You have been kind of uh, sounding the alarm relatively early on inflation, that you thought yields were going to go higher. All that were true. Nominal growth has been very strong. Where does it leave you now, though, at, with the value trade somewhat being tied to whether the economy can keep plugging along at a good clip here? That is the right question, Mike. You're absolutely right. We could see that we thought that inflation was going to be higher for some reason, the Fed didn't. Uh, and now we think inflation is probably peaking and going to come down. And now, unfortunately, the Fed thinks that now is the time to get tough on inflation. So, um, but you're absolutely right. Value has outperformed growth. It's because of the reasons that Mona mentioned that, frankly, growth stocks were overpriced and a higher interest rates are tougher on growth stocks than they are on value stocks. So, the only thing I'd be just a little cautious on is I still think we're a little too low on interest rates. We've certainly gotten them much closer where they should be. But historically, the 10 years averaged about 4%. We're still below that. So I still think we have a little higher to go on rates, which is generally better for value. But your fundamental point is right. If the Fed is hell-bent on crushing this economy, that is not going to be great for any part of the stock market. and It's not going to be great for value. Yeah, I mean, clearly it's all about, I guess, relative uh, advantages, not, you know, absolute protection from a further downturn in the economy. Um, so, Mona, when you talk about growth maybe emerging as a possible place to consider as being, you know, valuation reset has occurred there, what specifically would you be looking for? I mean, you have the, the very largest NASDAQ stocks that still had the premium valuation. You have more traditional growth or even kind of staples like stocks that fall into that category. Yeah, you know, look, I think um, for now, uh, with a, an economy that's potentially softening, keep in mind in that backdrop as well, when growth, economic growth is slowing, investors may seek out some growth in their portfolios. Um, but I think what we will see first recovering is the stable quality parts of the growth market. Uh, we're still pretty cautious on the more speculative, higher valuation parts of the market. But within stable growth, you know, there are some secular winners from a long-term perspective. If you think about areas like cyber, like parts of the healthcare market that can, can be considered growth, robotics, et cetera, um, cloud, enterprise spending, uh, anything with established business, business models. Um, and in fact, as we think about a market going through a downturn and then reemerging from a downturn, that's really when you'll start to see, especially on the enterprise side, some of that spending rebound, and even on the consumer side, some of that rebound as well. So think about your um, most loved quality growth names and Really think about over the next three to six months when you get that opportunity. Uh, keep in mind, growth has been beat up pretty badly this year, down 30 yeah. percent already. As we noted, valuations have come in quite a bit. Uh, Charlie, within within value, what about commodity related stocks that you've uh, you've certainly owned for a bit? Uh, does it still make sense there? Are we seeing the, that that mega trade roll over or is the decline uh, now an opportunity? Tough day to be on to answer that question. Um, yeah. I've loved Apache and Mosaic all year long. They are still up 21 to 30 percent on the year, but they were up 50 percent uh, a couple months ago. I, I yeah. still believe that demand for oil is going to be higher next year as the emerging markets, particularly uh, China, comes out of the COVID lockdowns. I still think we're going to have more demand next year than this year. And we haven't been spending enough on exploration. And so I think both supply side and the demand side are going to push uh, commodity prices higher. Uh, the fertilizer situation is in a very good place, frankly, unfortunately, because of the war in Ukraine, which is a big producer of fertilizers and demand for food is going to continue to grow. So I still like Apache and Mosaic, but it's a tough day to be on making that case. Yeah. 
Well, for sure. Um, and, and let me just follow up, Charlie, with the, uh, the notion of financials being caught right in the middle of all the things you're talking about. If yields still have to go higher, it's a benefit. Uh, but the, you know, the, the economy looks like uh, it could have uh, more downside. In fact, the Fed might want it to have more downside. And, and so people are lack confidence in bank earnings in the next couple of years. Yeah, and so far we're not seeing credit problems, um, but um, everything you just said right now it should be a great environment for, for bank stocks, a, a better net interest margin environment, higher rates, um, better deposit premiums for people are not moving their money around quite as quickly, and no signs, at least that we're seeing in our due diligence, of credit problems. So this should be a good time to own bank stocks, particularly Goldman Sachs trading very close to book. Uh, some of these bank stocks, um, it looks a little bit Goldilocks-like, that they could mm -hmm. have good credit situation with a good interest rate environment. Could be the right time to own. All right. We'll see uh, how it plays out. Going to be an eventful uh, final few months of this year. Mona, Charlie, thanks very much. Let's get thanks, a quick Mike. check back on the markets. The bounce is uh, it's carrying a little bit higher now. The S&P 500 is up uh, around 1% off of its intraday lows, still down 2% for the day, down close to 5%. For the week. Joining us now is Bespoke Investment Group co-founder Paul Hickey. Uh, Paul, I uh, love your read on things here in terms of, at least in the short term, how the market has digested what it heard from the Fed. We've had uh, this revisitation of the, uh, of the June lows. And now the question is, what's different and what's the same about what we saw in June about how the market is, is positioned? Yeah, so I mean, I think we're, I mean, there's a lot of concern. We're heading into an earnings season uh, coming up here, similar to how we, I mean, it's a very similar setup. We're heading into an earnings season where expectations are low um, in June, and we're heading into an earnings season now where expectations are low. Uh, from a seasonal perspective, I mean, we don't like to put all of our weight on seasonality, and, you know, we would never invest based solely on seasonality, but we're in an interesting dichotomy where it's, we're in one of the worst short-term periods of the year for the market over the next week or so. Over the next three months, it's one of the best uh, seasonal times of the year. Uh, so you the last week of September is one of the weakest. Uh, October and uh, the rest of the year, fourth quarter, is historically the strongest. And when you look at years where we've been down 10% or more heading into the fourth quarter, uh, the average returns are, are in those years are about double the historical average. So um, from that respect, that's something uh, somewhat positive on a, on a really bad day here. Uh, but, you know, the one difference, is, as the prior guests have been talking about, is this period is sort of unique in the fact that the Fed is pretty much openly rooting for, um, if not a weaker stock market, a weaker economy. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, looking like the market is at least assuming uh, that the soft landing is, is far less likely than it was a few months ago. Now, uh, the extreme moves that we're seeing in bond yields and to a degree currencies has everybody on alert for, for when they're going to just pause and, and reset a little bit lower, right? I mean, they've just kind of become very stretched. What does it look like to you in terms of, you know, the short-term yield picture uh, and other factors that really on a macro basis have been keeping the pressure on stocks? Yeah, so, I mean, we're starting to reach some ex extreme levels in the market here. Um, but in, in this environment, uh, you know, these kind of periods in the short term, they go on until they go on. So, I mean, it, it's yeah. really, you know, to say that we're going to reach this level, uh, that's when things turn better, um, you know, you're playing with fire doing that. From a longer term perspective, investors should just, you know, stick to their plans and not get too out of out of bounds with the what's going on day to day movements. But 
a lot of what's happened this week is reflect is a reflection of, of Fed and Fed policy, and you know, seemingly a lack of credibility on the part of Fed members. But I mean, this this week it hasn't just been the Fed. Uh, it's not every week that you see a nuclear superpower threaten nuclear war. And I mean, I mean, maybe it's not. It's probably very unlikely, but it, that's going to cause pe- concern on the part of people. So if we de- do see going ahead in the, in the weeks ahead that some of those tensions start to ease, uh, that's going to certainly uh, cause some relief on the market. And you know, for everyone talking about how offsides the Fed is, at the same time, they're saying that rates do need to be higher. I think it's a, a reflection of what the Fed is saying and trying to talk a real tough game. Uh, they should have just been, you know, moving rates to where they think they should be rather than just keep, you know, you know the slow bleed to higher rates here. Just just get it over with. Um, just like in, in March, they were too late to, you know, to stop buying treasuries. Now they're too late yeah. to hike rates. They're just, you know, easing us, trying to ease us into the game. But just get it over with. Yeah. Well, 375 basis point moves in a row. Maybe they don't consider that to be so piecemeal and slow. But I, I, I get your point because they do clearly have a destination in mind. And we might as well just hurry, hurry to get there, I suppose, Paul. Yeah. Uh, listen, yeah. appreciate it. Thanks a lot on a, uh, on a big market day. Good to have you. Thanks. You too, Mike. All right. Chip stocks underperforming the broader market. Christina Partsonevelis is here at, well, she's at the NASDAQ with the details on that group. Hey, Christina. <laughs> yeah, I'm at the NASDAQ and underperforming. And I could actually say moving closer and closer to that yearly bottom. Not just one, but you've got several names. Broadcom, AMD, LAM, NVIDIA, Applied Materials, Western Digital, the list goes on. All of those companies you're seeing on your screen right now are about 1.5% or less off of their 52-week lows. So those constituents that I just named, dragging down the the SOX as well as the SMH ETFs. The SMH is actually on pace for its fifth negative week in six. So what is happening despite the broader market sell-off and higher interest rates? Well, you've got consumer demand for electronics slowing, similar trends that we're starting to see in the cloud now, so that doesn't bode well for chips. And then, yeah, of course, the higher rates that, of course, hamper growth names. We know that. And lastly, an inventory correction that is underway forcing companies to reduce their orders. And that's why we're seeing more and more analysts right now trimming their estimates. For example, Morgan Stanley trimmed AMD, lowering the price target to 95 bucks today. They say the uh, PC market is going to be even worse than AMD predicted. Then you've got Goldman Sachs reducing estimates for both Micron and Western Digital to reflect demand weakness for memory chips in particular. They cut in August, just in August, and said today, we clearly did not cut enough. And then I wanted to add some some positive notes. So Wedbush, they had a note out and they said uh, they see long-term potential in artificial intelligence within NVIDIA, one of the biggest beneficiaries in data centers. And you can see with NVIDIA stock right now, despite this massive sell-off that we're seeing on the NASDAQ and across the board, NVIDIA is only down six-tenths of a percent right now. And that's where we are, Mike, here at this theme, relevant to all of tech, how estimates how much estimates need to come down uh, enough to reflect the current and near-term weakness. Absolutely. And whether the stocks have already beaten the estimates to it, we'll have to wait and see. Christina, thank you very much. The Nasdaq Composite down more than 5% this week. Up next, we'll look at whether there are any buying opportunities amid the tech wreckage with Evercore ISI Head of Internet Research, Mark Mahaney. That story plus much more on this market sell-off when we take you inside the market zone. We are now in the closing bell market zone. Lafford Tengler Investments CEO Nancy Tengler is here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, Renaissance Macro's Jeff DeGraff with one key chart to watch and Evercore ISI's Mark Mahaney on tech. 
Welcome uh, to all of you. Nancy, got a little bit of a, of a comeback, a bounce attempt here in the markets. We got to that three-month low, below the June lows in the S&P 500, up about 1% since. Uh, obviously, you don't want to make too much of one hour's action, but what are you seeing today? Uh, how does it essentially illuminate what's been going on in this market? And are you seeing anything that makes you want to change uh, what you hold and, and your approach right now? Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, listen, I have a slightly different view, I think, than, than many of those who have been on air this today. Uh, I think the market is telling us that it's it's uh, not very confident that the Fed's going to make a policy error. And if you think about it, they've made so many policy errors uh, since 2018 when Fed Chair Powell was talking very hawkish, and that gave us the 2018 bear market, and then all of the recent um, misstatements or mischaracterizations. I think it's important to be focused on that because it shows a, a, a judgment problem at the Fed. And I think that's what's scaring the market. But to answer your question, uh, we, we began uh, moving our clients back into bonds. We came out of bonds in June of 2020. We said then bonds were riskier than stocks. The 10-year yield was at 50 basis points. And now we can go back in building short-term ladders, high-quality corporates. That's one way that we changed our, our thinking. And then the second is uh, we, we, of course, have options available uh, on our clients' portfolios. But we... Um, then went within our strategies and became defensive last year, moved clients out of uh, the global markets into our dynamic inflation strategy, and then put in place um, some, some very reliable dividend growers. And the, the mm -hmm. trailing one-year dividend growth on our portfolio is over 20%. That's a good hedge against inflation. And so those are some of the things we've been doing, always conscious to, to be ready and willing to add risk back in, because we're not going to be in this bear market forever. And my 40 years in this business, every bear market yeah. is followed by a bull market. Well, that's for sure. And, and I was just going to quickly follow up on that and say, when it comes to the overall uh, trajectory for stocks from here, the, the real call at this point is, is it a garden variety, cyclical bear market pricing in a, an economic downturn? Or is it one of these kind of multi-year meltdowns, massive generational reset like we got in 2000, 2008? Do you have to make that bet right now? And which way would you make it? Yeah, I, I'm concerned that it, it's all going to come back to the Fed. I'm concerned about a, a 2000 to 2003 market. I, I was managing very large portfolios then. It was not fun for anybody. Uh, but I do think we, we are at peak inflation. We've seen it, in my view. The question is, how quickly does it come down? And because the Fed's looking backward, uh, it, makes them very it makes it very difficult for them to make good decisions. I, I'll, I'll just say this in closing. I mean, Fed Chair Powell said he was going to be very focused on inflation expectations. Well, they have remained pretty grounded. And so I'm hopeful yeah. that they will turn their attention to that instead of just responding to last month's uh, core CPI number. Yes, I think uh, the market hopes for the same. Let's get a technical take on the market. Our next guest says there is one key chart you should be watching. Joining us is Renaissance Macro Research Chairman Jeff DeGraff. Jeff, um, uh, we got the, the retest in, uh, in the big indexes today. What chart do you think uh, kind of shed some light on, on where we might be going from here? Well, look, I think uh, real yields are going to remain a, an important um, catalyst for this environment. And I agree um, with your guest on, on bonds. I mean, getting 125 basis points of real yield doesn't sound like a lot, but historically, that's the point where um, you're choking off recoveries. And I think, um, you know, you are sort of pushing your way through this. Um, we're seeing it in oil, we've seen it in copper, we've seen it in a lot of these input costs at the forefront. 
of uh, you know what the inflation data is going to look like. And we've got a Fed that's focused on employment and flo- focused on uh, wages and the like. And the problem with that is it tends to lag. And I think what you're seeing right now from the markets and from credit uh, is that um, you know it's already telling you that that in, uh, employment will start to react to this you know three six months from now and you know by the time they're seeing it uh, it might be too late and we're pushing this you know a little further than than they might be uh, comfortable with yeah real yields obviously the markets are kind of inflation adjusted yield on uh, let's say the 10-year you're talking about it is up in that zone where it's i guess restrictive and the fed chair has said he wants policy to be restricted for some period of time how does it now filter into where we are in 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 the equity indexes and in the broader market i mean uh so we're down at the similar levels to where we were in june what should we be looking for in terms of the internal action do we want to see it to be not quite as bad not as many stocks making new lows or do we want to see a more aggressive liquidation uh, that might be a little more decisive? Well, the aggressive liquidation would then be a real bullish setup for the overall market. And I don't know that we're going to get that. It's That's a, a trickier one depending on where we are within this Fed cycle. And look, I, I think I think we're 70% through this Fed cycle, probably even more than that. That's, that's a conservative estimate. So uh, I think that's good news. But clearly, when we do the work on you know, what the sectors are that react poorly and react well to uh, these higher real yields. It's it's almost exactly what you would expect. You would expect materials to underperform and actually, you know, it's actually very, very good news for bond yields. Again, I think, you know, 375, I think we got to 380 on the on the 10-year today. I think that's going to look like uh, an absolute steal as we look out a year from now. So, um, you know, you, you look at these very, very uh, inflation-sensitive type of names, and they absolutely underperform in a pretty severe way when you get these real yields to where they are. And I think that's exactly how you want to think about it. Utilities tend to do well uh, in this uh, in this type of environment. And actually, we do see that tech does well. I'm a little reluctant to be uh, in that camp. When we look at the data, that's a reflection of, uh, of, of some um, uh, idiosyncrasies. I don't think it's going to be as uh, as dynamic as it has been in the past. Healthcare mm-hmm. tends to do well, and that's another area that I think is going to you know perform pretty well with these restrictive uh, real yields. All right. So the, the, the market seeming to say that uh, the peak inflation is kind of in the bag. We'll see if the Fed responds to uh, to those signals uh, at some point soon. Uh, Jeff, great to talk to you. Appreciate that. And and turning now uh, further to tech. The Nasdaq tracking for back-to-back weekly losses of more than 5%. Microsoft, Intel, and Alphabet all hitting fresh 52-week lows today. Mark Mahaney, head of Internet Strategy at Evercore ISI, joins us now to break down some of these moves. And, uh, Mark, obviously, you know, environmental factors are swamping almost everything else. But given that's the case, uh, what is starting to, uh, on a relative basis, seem like uh, it's worth a look? Well, um, uh, this is a very challenging environment for uh, growth equities, for tech equities. I refer to, refer to this as a pincer movement, you know, with uh, rising rates and, and slowing economies. There have been a few interesting outperformers that remind me and to remind us all that fundamentals still do matter. So Netflix and Uber, Etsy and Trade Desk, uh, those four stocks are up 20 uh, percent uh, since the middle of the summer, since July 1st. 
you know, dramatically outperforming the market. Why is Netflix up? Because it's got a real catalyst uh, ahead of it in terms of a new ad-supported business. Why is uh, uh, Uber up? Because they've just turned the corner on free cash flow profitability. So, you know, I, I do think even in this market, fundamentals matter. And especially if you're willing to look out 12 months, we're going to look back on these and say, I should have stuck in and bought, you know, uh, I should have stayed in or started to accumulate some of the best fundamental stories in land. And, you know, Megacap has those. It has the Amazons, the Googles, and maybe even a Facebook. Just the risk reward on that, I think, is very attractive. So some of these names I still like and I'd still consider and I would still be buyers of. When it comes to, to Google, to, to, to Alphabet, it did kind of break below its June low. It's, it's certainly looking cheap relative to its own history uh, and even to the market if you, you know, adjust for its cash and all the rest of it. Um, is it mostly just macro concerns when it comes to, you know, the why of, of its underperformance recently? And this is uh, Meta we're talking about, Facebook? I'm sorry, for Google. For Google. Well, I think Google's got a little bit of a tougher uh, angle. So if we're going to get into the fundamentals on Google, the two things you want to think about are they were a major beneficiary of those Apple privacy changes that gutted online advertising, uh, ad tracking uh, tools. And actually, that really helped Google. And Google's also really benefited from all this travel advertising spend. We just went through the summer of travel love. And uh, Google is a great derivative off that. And so now you're going to have tough comps for Google, you know, going into the uh, beginning of next year. I I'm not I don't like Google the trade. I like Google the investment and I'll flip it. Uh, Meta to me is sort of more interesting as a trade, maybe not as much of an investment. It's hard for me to know uh, 12 months Mm -hmm. out. But near term, I think you're going to have an acceleration in revenue growth because they're going to move beyond some of these really uh, tough comps, just like we saw with um, Snapchat recently talking about an acceleration in revenue growth. You put acceleration behind uh, Facebook or Meta's revenue growth, you start showing margin expansion, and both uh, Meta and Google are talking about cutting Mm -hmm. costs. The market responds very well to uh, cost cutting at this stage, and it should. Nancy, have any of these kind of moved into your uh, target zone? Yes, uh, and and I agree with Mark. Um, I think the large cap names that we've been focused on uh, and have added to uh, over the summer and and in the uh, second quarter are are names like Google and Amazon. Uh, Microsoft is is such an obvious stock to talk about, but they just raised the dividend ten percent, and Nadella came out and was very encouraging about guidance and and where they're going. So I do think that you can make money in those stocks. You may have to extend your time horizon somewhat, uh, but Palo Alto Networks is another example. Cyber has a secular uh, tailwind to it, and I, uh, that stock has done very well, and we still own it uh, and still like it. It's one of our twelve best ideas. Mark, just a quick word on Amazon. Um, you know, it actually has held up better, but didn't really participate in the upside in, in 2021. Uh, what's going on there? Is it really just kind of going to the incumbents and the, and the, and the, the size and heft of, of Amazon as defense? Yeah, uh, maybe that's it. The stock hasn't really done anything, Mike, as, as you know, in, yeah. I don't know, almost two years now. And by the way, that's come back to bite them a little bit in terms of they had to now spend more on stock-based comp to re-energize those engineers who could you know, did very nicely being underpaid with stock, but stock that dramatically outperformed for a decade. That's changed. So it's a different dynamic for Amazon. But anyway, going forwards, 
Um, I think you're in a pace now where Amazon's going to see this revenue growth acceleration. E Online retail was the first hit uh, earlier this year because of inflation shocks and demand shocks. That means they'll probably be the first out. And I think you're going to see that with Amazon. I think revenue growth can accelerate. I think they've had so many uh, hard-hitting costs come at them earlier this year, whether it was fuel, shipping, labor costs. And I think they'll start scaling through all of those. I mean, you just had unusual shocks at the beginning of the year. So I like the setup in Amazon. I don't think anything changes with cloud computing. And they still have the best mix shift story in tech. The fastest growing parts of the business, advertising and AWS are the highest margins. Best mix shift story in tech. Mm -hmm. You want to belong Amazon as a trade and as an investment. Mm -hmm. All right, Mark, appreciate your, uh, your thoughts today. Thanks very much on a rough day. Uh, another one for the NASDAQ. And two minutes to go in the trading day. Nancy. Uh, just a final thought here in terms of we're going to not not too far from now be in the earnings zone again. Um, have you been stress testing sectors and stocks for, you know, what's priced in, what's not? What do you expect out of earnings? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the companies that we own, surprisingly, uh, raised guidance. So even though you just did a piece on semis and, and how, um, how difficult that space is going to be, a company like Broadcom, where they've you know, got a really strong capital allocation strategy. They've grown the dividend about 35% annualized over the last five years. And they see acceleration in their cloud and enterprise uh, business. So we, we're looking at names like that in technology. And then we're focused on uh, some of our healthcare overweight. Some of the names we, we like a lot are like CVS and AbbVie with very strong dividend growth pr uh, prospects. So Usually you're getting in the dividend, you're getting management's view of long-term sustainable earnings power. So we're, that's mm -hmm. where we're focused. We, of course, are going to have some companies that are going to get crunched. Um, but generally, I thought the second quarter earnings were pretty darn good. And some of the mm -hmm. guidance as well. X the F, you know, the FedExes of the world. Yeah. And uh, certainly dividend growth is uh, a little bit of uh, an inflation buffer, as you said. Nancy, right. thanks very much. Appreciate the time today, Nancy Tengler. As we head into the close, the S&P 500 uh, is down about 1.8 percent, had been down closer to 2.5 percent earlier. It's on track to close a little bit above the June lows. It had breached those levels. 36.66 was the closing low. Here we are about 25 points above that. 36.36 was the intraday low. Uh, the U.S. dollar index up a percent and a half on the day. An absolutely mega move for a currency index. Two-year note yield, 4.2 percent. In terms of stocks, NASDAQ also down 1.8 percent. The Russell 2000 has been the underperformer, down 2.5 percent uh, as we ride into another losing week, but a little bit of an attempt to bounce off what had been uh, some pretty decisive lows back in mid-June. That does it for closing valve.